Listen. No, where I come from, my name is Sergey. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. Where I come from, Easter is, is the time when you kiss everybody in sight. You, you do three kisses for every time you say, Christ is risen, and somebody responds, He's risen indeed. Uh, I just want to say we're just being biblical, really. Uh, the Bible commands us to kiss each other, so maybe we can start that at Chatham at some point. I'm, uh, I'm going to release the children in just one minute, but I want to... Uh, draw your attention to the bulletin. There's lots of things happening at Chatham. I'm not going to go through it. Uh, I expect that most of you know how to read, so read through them. There's a couple of important things. There's a welcome lunch coming up if you're a visitor. Uh, there's also an orientation class for membership that starts next Sunday, and the women's conference registration for it is happening right now. So read through it. There's lots of things that are happening. We're excited to see what God is doing in our midst. And now children between the ages 2 and 8 are released to go to children's church. If you are new, you can take your children that way to the foyer and there will be somebody there to direct you and them. I'd like to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew 28. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. And if you are using a black pew Bible, you will find this passage on page 835. 835 in the black pew Bibles. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own, if you're just discovering Christianity, we would be happy if you took one of ours and, and read it at home. So please follow me as I read Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled, became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold... He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would speak through this book, that it is your voice that we will hear, and that your message of hope would utterly transform us. Lord, I pray for your gospel to be communicated to us today in power. 
that we would sense and understand and feel and be moved by the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and rose for us and gave us a new life. And we pray all of that in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who rose from the dead. Amen. Well, as we look at the story of the resurrection, I'd like us to consider three things. First, the reality of the resurrection. I'm going to ask the question, is it a historical event? Is it important? Secondly, the meaning of the resurrection. Why is it important? How important is it for us to believe in the resurrection of Christ? And finally, we'll consider the power of the resurrection. How we can and should take it personally and apply it to our lives. So the reality of the resurrection, the meaning of the resurrection, and the power of the resurrection. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Really, did he do that? Did it happen? The well-known Yale University professor, Yaroslav Pelikan, near the end of his life said, if Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, nothing else matters. Now, what did he mean by that? He meant that if the resurrection was a historical event, if it actually took place in a specific part of the world at a specific time with specific people involved, if it actually happened, then that event eclipses all other events. Nothing else would really come even close in significance and importance to what happened with Jesus. However, if the resurrection did not actually take place, nothing else in Christianity makes any sense. And Christians, including Pelican and me and all of you gathered here this morning, simply have built our whole lives on a lie. If the resurrection did not happen, then our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, as the Apostle Paul said, and according to the Christian worldview, death still reigns and we are without hope. So if Jesus was raised from the dead, nothing else matters. But if he wasn't, nothing else is, is important in our faith either. So, did he rise from the dead? Well, there are many people, smart people, winsome people, spiritual people, moral people who say, no, no, Jesus didn't rise. It's a myth. It's a story. It has a spiritual significance, perhaps, but it's not a historical fact. It's not a historical event. Even some people who identify themselves as Christians say, no, Jesus did not rise from the dead. In fact, this time of year, if you turn on your TV, there are lots of programs that ask questions like, did it really happen? Or what really happened on that day? There's all these conspiracy theories that are being explained to us and saying, look, it was, it was, it's a myth. It just developed over time. It's a religious invention that brings some benefit to humanity, but ultimately is not based in fact. Now, on the other side of that argument, there's the New Testament. Lots of people who wrote the New Testament actually believed that it happened. So the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, both write 
as if the resurrection was a historical fact. It's hard to read the New Testament without thinking that they believed it. They thought, at least they thought it was true. Then we go into the letters of the New Testament and Paul and others and James and they, Peter, they talk of the resurrection as if it really happened as well. So how can we explain that? How can we explain that such a large number of people, including all these people that wrote the New Testament, believe that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical event? Well, I see three possible explanations to that. They were deceived themselves, perhaps. They were confused. They believed something that wasn't true, but they really believed it. Number two, they decided to deceive others. So they made it up and they wanted to communicate this story to the world to gain some sort of advantage or power for themselves. Or the third option, the resurrection actually happened in history. So let me work through those. I think this will help us understand whether the resurrection was true and is true or not. Now the first option is that the early Christians were themselves deceived into believing that Jesus had risen from the dead. They really believed that the resurrection took place, so their faith was sincere. They actually really, really believed it. They were just mistaken. Now, if you know a little bit of the New Testament history, you understand that the people who wrote this book were fishermen and peasants, right? You can say they were primitive, they were naive, they were superstitious. Perhaps they foolishly expected that Jesus would come back from the dead because that is what he had told them would happen. And their judgment, of course, was clouded by grief. And, you know, their beloved leader just died in a most violent way. And perhaps they were so confused and so grief-stricken that they imagined this great outcome that Jesus actually conquered death and was with them again. Maybe they just missed him so much they envisioned him back into their lives. Maybe their superstitions, their beliefs about the supernatural kicked in and they believed what they wanted to believe. So they were sincere, can't fault them for that, but they were mistaken. Well, there are some serious problems with this explanation, even though many people do believe this to be true. You see, in the first century world, almost nobody believed in bodily resurrection. We simply can't say that the early Christians were so primitive that they had not yet figured out that corpses do not come back to life. That doesn't make sense, right? The more primitive belief would be that corpses don't come back to life because we don't see it. They were typical first century people who believed that there is nothing after death. Bodies don't come back to life. They just rot in graves. As much as we would like to think of them as superstitious, it is actually more likely that a 21st century American would believe in the resurrection of the dead than a first century Greek or Jew. Now, my definitive, I have definitive proof of this statement that it's more likely for a 21st century American to believe in the resurrection of the dead than the first century Greek or Jew. And my definitive proof in this statement is our excessive fascination 
with zombies. <laughs> I don't think you can really argue against that. We don't think it's strange, right? That people come back from the dead. Based on our TV watching habits, we don't think it's strange. Maybe we are the superstitious ones. If The Walking Dead was, was shown in Rome in first century, it would have been canceled towards the end of the first season because it didn't make any sense to anybody. And some of you are saying it doesn't make any sense to me either. I don't understand why, why it's so popular, but I guess there is a biblical foundation for watching The Walking Dead. The Greeks of the time of the New Testament believed that the soul is finally liberated from the body at death. They thought it was a good thing that bodies died and were gone because bodies were prisons for souls and souls were finally free. So that's a good thing. Why would you want to bring a body back? Jews, many Jews, like the Sadducees in, in the Bible that you read about, they believed there was no resurrection at all. They didn't think there was a resurrection. Their belief system, their worldview did not allow for the resurrection. And other Jews believed that there will be a final resurrection at the end of time, but not in this world. At some point, all the righteous will come to life, but not now, not one by one. So there was simply no cultural context to expect Jesus to rise bodily from the dead. Okay, so maybe the disciples went against their culture in expecting the resurrection because Jesus told them that he would rise again. And it is true that Jesus told them. There are many passages in Scripture. Even the angels said, Jesus rose as he said. And yet the question is, did the disciples believe Jesus when he told them that he would rise from the dead? They would have had to believe him and really hold on to that truth if they were to go against the cultural norms, against the, the normal view of seeing life and death in their own culture. Now, did they take it seriously? Well, look at our story. Why are these two women coming to the tomb? Are they expecting to meet the living Jesus? No. The reason they're coming, and they're coming early, is because they want to embalm the corpse. They want to take care of the corpse. They're bringing spices and oils. They are fully expecting Jesus to be dead and the body in need of taking care of. And by the way, where are all the other disciples who heard Jesus talk about his resurrection? They're not at the tomb. They're not waiting for him to rise again. In fact, Luke in another account tells us that when these women came to the disciples, to the apostles, to the more important people in the church movement, right? So they come to their leaders and they come and they tell them, Peter and John and those guys, and they tell them, Jesus is alive. It actually happened. He, he is alive. And what they think is that it's, it's just an idle tale. They don't believe their own friends that it happened. By their own admission, the early Christians did not believe that Jesus was going to come back from the dead. No one was expecting it in their own movement. Nobody was expecting it. Somehow they totally dismissed or forgot or misinterpreted what Jesus was telling them. So they were not gullible or superstitious. They were skeptics. 
like you and like, like I am. They were unbelievers that became believers under the weight of evidence that they saw. Now I'm running ahead a little bit, but that first explanation that they were simply deceived to me doesn't seem to make much sense. Now the second possible explanation, that is a very popular one, and that is probably what you're going to see on TV if you watch those shows about the investigations into the first century world of the Bible. And that is that the apostles and the other disciples were not deceived themselves, but they were the deceivers. They decided to make up a story that included this miracle of the resurrection in order to hold the Christian movement together. Because their leader just died. He was executed as a criminal. So what do you do with all this following that is happening? And so the story goes that the apostles got together and they said, let's come up with a convincing story to to tell the world that Jesus really is alive, that it's worth following us, that we could exercise some sort of power and authority over our movement and perhaps even convince others to join us. So let's examine Matthew's story. I'm just going to stay in Matthew, but you can do that with any other gospel in the same way. But let's examine Matthew's story and see if it sounds like something they made up to convince us of the resurrection. Now, first of all, the first witnesses of the resurrection are two women. Now, we live in a much better world today, and we need to appreciate that. In their world, if you were a woman and you saw a crime being committed and you were called to court to testify, your testimony would be dismissed. You just simply would not be trusted. The judge would not think you were a reliable witness. That's how the courts worked in that time. That's true. That's historically true. So Matthew describes the resurrection by placing two women as his star witnesses to this event. And by the way, both of them are called Mary. Both of them. When you make up a story, please come up with two different names. It's confusing. What's worse, one of the Marys, Mary Magdalene, is a well-known character. Now she shows up in other parts of Scripture. People knew who she was. The reason people knew who she was, because she was deeply troubled. She was affected by demonic possession for years. Until she met Jesus, and Jesus freed her from it. Jesus cast out, not one, not two, seven demons out of her. Now that's her history, that's her reputation. This is who Matthew puts at the empty tomb to show the world, right, that it really happened. Two women, let me summarize this, okay? Two women whose testimony would not be admissible in court, both named Mary, and one of them is a fairly well-known person with significant issues in life. Now, If I were to come up with a story to convince the world that something happened, really happened, these would not be my characters, my witnesses, people that I would choose to show that it really happened. That doesn't make sense to me. So why does Matthew do this? Why does he write this account that is culturally 
It's countercultural. It doesn't make sense for anybody in the first century. It's not convincing anybody because of the witnesses he places at the empty tomb. Why does he do that? Was he deceived? I don't think so. Was he a deceiver? I don't think so. And if he was, not, not a very good one. So why is all of this here? To me, the only logical answer to that is because it really happened. And that is how it happened. It is those two women that came to the tomb. And coincidentally, they were both named Mary. It just happened. It's just true. So instead of clarifying it and changing the story, Matthew just leaves it the way it is. Because those are the people you could talk to and ask them, what really happened? Which Mary are you? Where were you when that happened? People could talk to them. They were mentioned in the story. These are actual people that were there, that saw the angel, that, that felt the earthquake, that saw Jesus and worshipped at his feet. To me, the most likely explanation, unless you're coming in with other biases coming from your worldview, whichever worldview you're coming from, to me, the most likely explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And I know how hard it is for us today, for us skeptics, to believe that the resurrection of Jesus was a historical event. But I want you to know it's just as hard for the early Christians to believe that. It was not any easier for them to accept it as a historical fact. They believed it because they simply found it to be true. And it, in fact, it changed their worldview. It changed the way they saw Jesus. It changed the way they saw their life and, and their purpose and their mission. Because it happened. And they had to deal with that. They had to come to grips with something that took place right there. Christian writer, one Christian writer noted, it's in the disbelief of the first believers that I base my own belief. It's in the disbelief of the first believers that I base my own belief. I find it tremendously comforting as I read the gospel accounts that the leaders of the movement seem to fail. They don't understand what's happening. That the stories don't seem to be made up, but they're not all that convincing. That the apostles dismiss the testimony of the women just like a court would and show themselves to be misogynistic. To me, that's comforting. Because it rings true. Because that's how it would have happened if it really happened. Okay, so let me make a big assumption. My assumption is that I convinced you just now that the resurrection was true. Okay, there's lots of other arguments, of course, but that is my argument this morning. Let's say you agree with me that the resurrection was a historical event, that Jesus actually came from death to life and he showed himself to the apostles and it is true what we read in the Bible. The next question is, what does it mean? Why is it important? Now look at how Matthew begins his story in verse 1 of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. This is not just telling us when it happened. This is signaling to us that the resurrection of Jesus is a cosmic event with universal and eternal implications. 
Now remember how the Bible starts. God creates the world. He creates the world in six days. On the seventh day, which is the Sabbath day, He rests. So there's the creation for six days, including the creation of humanity. And then He rests for the seventh day. Now this story is picked up by Matthew in chapter 28 of his gospel when he says, after the Sabbath, after God had rested, after he had finished creating and he rested, now he's creating again. Now God is at work again, making a new creation, reversing the trajectory of the fallen world and bringing the world back to himself. Matthew is signaling to us, this is what's happening. This is why the earthquake, this is why the angels. This is bigger than just a man coming back to life as miraculous as that may be. Something else is happening. Something bigger is happening here. You read the rest of the New Testament and you see things like Christ is the first fruits. Right? He's the, the firstborn of resurrection. He is the first stage in the new creation something is happening god is doing something of cosmic consequences there's the early harvest of that resurrection there's the foretaste of what is yet to come the resurrection of jesus according to scripture means that the creator of the world has returned to work on the first day of the next week And he is making the world new again. A new creation has been initiated, set in motion by the resurrection of Jesus. The world is being restored, renewed, rebuilt. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. What the apostles thought they had seen was the first movement of a great wheel beginning to turn in the direction opposite to that which all men hitherto had observed. So there's something happening that is reversing the course of the world, that is changing, that is bringing a new power into it. A new creation is unfolding. That is the meaning of the resurrection. God has reversed the course of the world. Creation is not lost. Jesus fought to get it back and he succeeded. The enemy has been defeated. Death has received a fatal wound. The resurrection of Jesus is a cosmic event with universal and eternal implications. It is the beginning of God's restoration of his creation. Archbishop Rowan Williams said, We are really standing in the middle of a second big bang, a tumultuous surge of divine energy 
as fiery and intense as the very beginning of the universe. Let me read this to you again. If we are affected by the resurrection, we are really standing in the middle of a second big bang, a tumultuous surge of divine energy, as fiery and intense as the very beginning of the universe. It's no accident that the earth quaked, that the angels proclaimed. Heaven came down to save the earth. God is at work again, making all things new. The resurrection is not just something that happened to Jesus. It happened to the world. And that's the meaning of it. The historical event is now explained in Scripture as a cosmic event. I want to talk about why it's important to us. What is the power of that resurrection? A power that is able to affect my life today and your life today. The power of the resurrection, this tumultuous surge of divine energy as fiery and intense as the very beginning of the universe, is unleashed not only in the world cosmically, but also in the life of an individual. In Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, Paul writes that the power working in us, in the church, in the Christian, is God's great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. So the power that is working in us is the same power, is as powerful as that power that raised Jesus from the dead. Anyone who is in Christ is called a new creation. Conversion to Christ is often described as a second birth. See, there's a second creation, there's a second life, there's a new beginning that happens when a person comes to Christ by that power of the resurrection. This is incredible. If we take this to be true, if we trust what the Apostle Paul is saying, what other people are saying in Scripture, this is absolutely incredible. The power that can renew the whole world is diffused by the resurrection over all creation. But at the same time, the same power is infused into the individual believer. Now can you imagine the kind of resources that a Christian is promised to have at their disposal if the power of the resurrection the same power that created everything is now redeeming everything is given to each believer to help them, to help us. Is it any wonder that Christians exhibit such tremendous courage in the face of suffering, persecution, and death? Christian history is, is full of stories of joyful martyrs. Joyful martyrs. All but one of the twelve apostles, the tradition tells us, died violent and yet joyful deaths. They were happy to die for Christ. They lived in the power of the resurrection and they died in the power of the resurrection. That power was working in them. That's what gave them courage and meaning when faced with death. John Wesley was the leader of the Methodist movement in, eight, in the 1700s, mostly in England, and 
You know, historians say that it was John Wesley that changed England. And it's, it's amazing what, what happened because of his preaching and his ministry. But a physician friend of his came to him once and he said, You know, I've, I've been there when many of your followers died, mostly natural causes. And he said, I'd never seen anybody face death so courageously, calmly, and triumphantly as your followers. And Wesley said, Yes, our people die well. What a testimony. Our people die well. Why? The resurrection power working in us. Why would we be scared of death? Why would we be sad when we know that our Savior has conquered it? He has no power over us if we believe, if we understand what the Scriptures tell us. I remember as a student at Moody in Chicago going to Founders Week, which is a big conference every year at Moody, and Johnny Erickson Tata was speaking. It was the first time I heard her speak. I didn't know much about her ministry at the time. I wasn't introduced to the world of disability and special needs then. I just heard her speak at Moody Church, and she, you may not know her story, she's paralyzed from neck down because of a diving accident when she was a teenager. And she has a tremendous ministry. She has a tremendous influence, uh, really, in the world right now. And she spoke about the love of God. And she sang. She sang, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And for me to see a woman like that sing about her wise and good God, totally in love with Jesus, was so meaningful, was so powerful. How could she do that? I mean, her, her life is so hard. Why would she be joyful? Because the power of the resurrection, and she would say that, the power of the resurrection was working in her. I think of the resurrection power working in people who adopt children, move to other countries to introduce people to Jesus, care for the dying in hospice, take in troubled and needy people into their homes, battle mental illness, work behind the scenes in churches and missions and charities, give their wealth to the poor. Why? Because the power of the resurrection enables them to do that. It doesn't make sense until you consider the Savior that they serve. And then it does. Then you say, yeah, of course. Because Jesus did that. And Jesus overcame death and overcame our enemies. And we can do the same. We can live in the same power of the resurrection. There are so many stories of God's new creation unfolding in the lives of His people. Many of those stories are here at Chatham. Which is why we do testimonies. We, we talk about what God is doing in our lives to encourage each other because this power of the resurrection is at work in us and among us. God is doing strange and amazing things in the lives of His people who have been affected, personally affected by the resurrection of Jesus. There are some people here that, this is my first year at Chatham, so I'm learning. Right? I'm getting to know many of you. And I'm learning your stories. And I'm so amazed at some of what I hear. When I get to know someone and I think, how in the world can they be so patient? Given their life circumstances, how in the world 
can they be so patient? Or how in the world can they be so joyful given the pain that they have in their lives? And I have to remind myself, that is not unusual in the church. It shouldn't be surprising. These are God's people, very much affected intellectually, emotionally, and supernaturally by the power of the resurrection of Christ. So the question you may be asking now is how can I experience this kind of power? Maybe I think I'm a Christian, maybe I am a Christian, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. But I sure would like to live like that. I'd like to take on life's challenges courageously and authentically and and joyfully. I would like to at some point die well, be ready to do that and die well when time comes. I'd like to suffer well. I'd like to be the kind of influence in the world that that blesses people and gives comfort to people and helps people get through their stuff. I'd like to live like that. How can I do that? How can this power of the resurrection be applied to me today? Well, the answer is in our text. Look at verses 8 and 9, because here we see the reaction of the first witnesses. We see how the women react to the news of the resurrection and then the encounter with Jesus himself. Verses 8 and 9. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. When they hear about the resurrection, they see Jesus. What they do is they fall down, they grab his feet, and they worship him. That is the only appropriate reaction to the resurrection. He's falling down, grabbing hold of his feet as tight as you can, and worshiping him. Now they do that with fear and great joy. Why fear? We have never seen this kind of power before. Which is why when you hear these stories, you say, that's amazing that it does that. It's unusual. Yes, it is. This kind of power is scary. It's weird that somebody would come from the dead. I mean, it doesn't make sense to us. And yet it happened. So it scares us. This power is awesome in the not in the teenage sense of the word, but in the true sense of the word. It's awesome. We don't know what to do with that. And so we are scared. It's appropriate to fear the Lord. And yet, there is a great joy. There is fear, but there is a greater joy. They are rejoicing that that power that they can't quite comprehend, they can't quite put in a category of their own, that that power is on their side. It's for them. It's for us. That the power that raised Jesus from the dead is now applied to us to help us, to bless us, to save us, to empower us to do what God wants us to do. With fear and great joy, we fall down and we worship Jesus. The resurrection proves to us that God is great, hence the fear. But it also proves to us that He loves us greatly. He loves us so much that His Son came to die in our place for our sins. And then, not only did He die, 
He came back from death for us. Think of the resurrection as Jesus coming back to get us. He's saying, I've been gone too long. I miss you. I'm going to come back and see you once again before I go to the Father and we complete this whole redemption thing. I'm going to see you one more time. I'm going to spend time with you because I love you. The resurrection shows us that God is great, but that he loves us greatly. The resurrection really happened. I am convinced that that is the only way to explain the gospel accounts. And when it happened, it set in motion a whole new creative activity of God in the world. And this power, this never-seen-before power, can be infused into your life today. So the question is, will you take hold of Jesus' feet and worship Him today? If you are a believer, I am simply calling you to a deeper experience of Christ. If you are not a believer, maybe you don't believe in the resurrection, maybe you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in the church, you don't think this whole thing makes any sense, I want to press you wrestle with these issues do you have an explanation that fits the evidence can you explain why christians live the way they live why the apostles died for the resurrection and do you want to live courageously authentically and joyfully and if you say yes if you say i i didn't know jesus until now but i i want to know him now Come to Him and worship Him. There's no formula. There's nothing specific you need to say in your prayer that somehow unlocks this magical world. It's a person. And you are a person and you come to Him. And you say, Jesus, I'm here. I'm here to worship You. Because You did die for me and You did rise from the dead. And that changes everything for me. If it's true, nothing else matters. Come to Him today we're going to come to the table and celebrate the resurrection of jesus in communion now the reason we do that and we do that every week is to remind us of that power that is being infused in us it's when you eat and you drink your body is nourished well so is your soul when you meditate on the gospel when we proclaim the gospel every week and hopefully you proclaim the gospel to yourself every day. Your body is not infused with anything, but your soul is infused with faith that is stronger and stronger, that accepts these things, that rejoices in these things, that revels in the resurrection of Jesus who loved us. And so if you are a Christian, I encourage you to come to the table. You don't have to be part of our church. You just have to be a believer in Christ to come and celebrate with us at this table. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you not to come to the table because of peer pressure or because your family is going to do that. Be honest with yourself. But take that time to consider Jesus himself. Forego the elements, but take Jesus. Take him as a person, the one you can worship starting even now. We're going to sing, and as we sing after I pray... I encourage you to come up front. You can take communion right up here.
You can take the bread and the cup, take it right here, and leave the cup back at this table in the basket. Or you can take it back to your seat. If you feel you need more time to meditate, to confess your sins, to think about what the resurrection means for you, do that. We're going to have a couple of songs after that. You'll have time to really think personally about the resurrection and then take it at your own time and convenience. If you're in the balconies, you don't have to come down. There's communion that is served right there, so you can come forward where you are and take the bread and the cup there. If you are unable to come forward, one of the elders will bring it to you. So please just raise your hand if you can't physically come forward. We'd love to give it to you, and one of the elders will bring it to you. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing and celebrate at the table. Our Father, we praise you for the great power that was manifested at the resurrection of your Son. We thank you that it really happened, that we as reasonable people can believe that. That the only explanation is not that it's a fabricated fable or some sort of an oppressive meta-narrative but it actually happened and it changed the lives of the gospel writers in the early church. Thank you for the evidence that you allow us to see even today. We thank you that in that event, a cosmic shift happened and that you are making everything new again, that you are at work again, recreating, rebuilding, renewing this world and us in it. We are thankful for your grace that you did not give up on the world and walked away. You could have done that and nobody could have blamed you for it. And yet in your great love and mercy, you decided to save us at the expense of your own son who lived a perfect life, died a shameful death for our sins and then gloriously rose again for our justification. We are so thankful for him. And we pray, Lord, that we would now come in contact with that resurrection power that is promised to us in Christ. For the believers, I pray that you would give us a new hope and encouragement to live out based on the resources that you've given us by your Holy Spirit. Some of us have difficult decisions to make this week. Some of us are facing pain and discouragement and disillusionment and frustration in our lives. We pray that you would infuse the resurrection power into our lives. And for those who are not believers, I pray that they would become believers, just like the early church, the apostles who were skeptics and unbelievers themselves, who did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. I pray that people here, people who are dear to you, would see the evidence historically and personally of the resurrection fall down, grasp your feet and worship you in great joy and with a little fear. Lord, I pray that now as we come to your table, you would accept us by grace. We pray for your spirit to continue to work in our hearts. We confess that we are broken. None of us completely understand anything in Scripture. None of us perfectly lives out anything that you have commanded us. So we come to you like that, trusting in your grace, rejoicing in your grace that calls us to this table to be strengthened again, encouraged again to pursue the life 
in Christ. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now here is the fear part of it. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, in other words, without believing that this is Jesus coming to us by grace, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Lord, accept us by grace in the name of Jesus.